and welcome to the Untapped Philanthropy Podcast. I'm your host and Flux co-founder, Corinne Mitchell. I've spent my career exploring technology's role and amplifying impact within our social sector, and more specifically, helping funders to learn to leverage technology and data to connect and better serve our collective causes, constituents, and communities. In this podcast series, my team and I will profile social sector leaders, public figures, philanthropists, and industry futurists to explore this fascinating intersection of funding, technology, and policy. We're here to analyze the most critical and formative topics and trends that shape philanthropy both today and tomorrow. We hope this series leaves you inspired to think and act through a more collective and visionary lens. This week, I'm thrilled to welcome the Director of Strategic Partnerships at Neon One, Tim Sarantonio. Tim, go ahead and introduce yourself in your own words. Ooh, uh, tall order. <laughs> um, thank you, Corinne, for, for having me. I, uh, I always love having a chat with you, and uh, that's because my role over here is, is focusing on the different ways that uh, channels and, and partnerships and alliances work in the social goods sector, specifically around our technology and services ecosystem. So Neon One focuses on uh, fundraising technology, but more on the individual fundraiser side, maybe a little bit touching on corporate gifts and grants and things of that nature. But this is more, uh, I want to give you know, 50 bucks in, in an annual appeal, or I'm a major donor and I want to give through my donor advised fund, things like that. So where I do is kind of help smooth out the, the technology and process edges that, that typically come when people are developing uh, what I like to call a generosity ecosystem. So um, that's, that's a little bit about me. Of course, you know, we can learn more about me as we progress, but that's my job at the very least. <laughs> yeah. And, and you and I met, you know, two, two years ago, three years ago, two years ago. Yeah. Definitely so, at minimum two years ago at this point. Okay. Yeah. Two to three years ago. And and I do feel like we've been friends for decades. So for whatever it's worth, I, I knew I liked you during our first encounter in DC where kind of in the land of, of, um, I dare I say boring conferences, but we'll call it conferences. You are um, sporting a full bow tie and vest of the solar system. So the 10-year-old in me that went to space camp was like overjoyed and knew we were already friends. So where that was really our starting point, we obviously, as got as we got to know each other, we learned that we were really quite aligned on our take in the industry, where it needed to evolve, how we needed to meet the challenges of today's collective. So a lot of what I want to talk about today is kind of in line with that, but taking it a step further too and saying, where are some of the the opportunities and challenges that that we think will get us there, everything from, from data to mindsets to whatnot. So this could go in any number of directions. And, and thank you so much for humoring me as we kind of walk through that and, and, and meander our way. Just a quick level set so everyone really understands um, a quick overview maybe of your work now at Neon. I know we just talked about it briefly, but can you give us a quick overview of your work um, and perhaps what's your favorite part of that role? So the technology that we have, we have a core constituent relationship management system. We do peer-to-peer -peer fundraising. We do giving days, which is something that that I'm going to get into in terms of uh, really interesting possibilities of growth in our sector. We do client case management on the program side, you know, a dash of websites. And so there's a lot of stuff happening there. And so my job is to help make that story very easy for an organization to navigate. And that organization could be a foundation. That organization could be an individual nonprofit that's just getting started. Like everybody has a different path. Like Corinne, how, what was your path into the sector? 
personally? I know technically you're supposed to be asking me questions, but I'm going to ask you one. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like my path started actually at Cisco Systems, wherein I was I was in finance and I on the side started doing work for their Bay Area Impact Fund as sort of just a, a reviewer of potential I think it was like a K through five education fund. And I got kind of slurped into it in a way that I, I thought was just so much more fascinating than my actual job. So when I went and left and went to the next chapter after seven great years there, um, I really did want to to say if I was going to work as hard as I was working, how do I do it for something I care about? So we started Flux kind of shortly thereafter. And it's been obviously an immersive a next chapter for me. So I've really only had two chapters in my career, Cisco and Flux. <laughs> and, and I think that's, that's indicative of a similar story everybody's going to tell. And what I mean by similar is that they're all similar and that none of them are going to be the same. And that's interesting in terms of the ways that it brings diversity of thought, diversity of experience to the sector. But then there's also a lot of, one, balkanization in terms of how people implement things and standardize reporting on impact, for instance. And then the other issue is that because there is no set path then it's very difficult for people to feel that they can be part of a larger thing other than I help people, right? right? Like, And so I, I think that leads to a little bit of tribalism where people then say, okay, I need to, to go to this Facebook group and I'm only going to talk to these like thousand people that are small nonprofits that share the same point of view generally. Right. And we're all having similar experiences, but we all get there in different ways. So it's hard for all to even use the same language in many, many ways. I was on Twitter and that can go either way when it comes to the power that platform has. Right. But there's fundraising Twitter. I, I, I don't know how, but I got attributed to founding the hashtag fundraising Twitter. Oh, good. And well, pff, I didn't realize that. Right. Somebody just said, congrats, you know, some, some guy in Ireland, Simon Scriver was like, and fundraising Twitter was born because of, you know, Tim Serantonio and T. Clay Buck. And I'm like, really? Wow. wow. Like, I didn't know that. You okay, cool. Author. <laughs> I guess. The new age author, indeed. Oh, like, I don't know about that because of the <laughs> infighting that sometimes happens there. But every every subculture has that, right? You know, there's beer yeah. Twitter and, and left-wing Twitter wow. and, and all that. And so what what was interesting, though, is I was talking about just general impact. And I think I was talking about Giving Tuesday impact and the different ways that people do things. And, and somebody uh, randomly found me and, 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 and said, you know, we should be basically, they said, we should be giving money directly to people. Right. And I mean, I think that's one of the things that we're looking at. And that, that idea of like, at the very yes. top of our mind should always be that social, that, that grantee, that end result, the actual yeah. maker. So absolutely agree. I, I think that's the thing that we have to recalibrate around for sure. And we've talked about this extensively, but not in a in a public podcast way, but just I am finding more and more interest in just the idea of supply chain elements of our sector. I do not think, and I certainly did not think about this when I got started as a as a grant writer for an organization that in its entire budget was eighty four thousand dollars for everything. <laughs> and and I didn't think about supply chain management from we are trying to manage resources and money and 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 
certain assets to to achieve a goal of addressing discrimination in the day labor workforce in Southside Chicago, right? Like that's what our focus was. But we, I wasn't connecting the dots to, I need to hustle and get this grant. And then this is what we're going to do with it. Like I, 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 I talked about that in a way, but I never thought of it like an end to end process that then needs to, to re refresh itself and resupply itself. And I think that we can learn a lot on what is happening. And we're starting to see this more in terms of even the term supply chain come up more right. in our space, at least at the high level, let's be honest, right? Our industry is bizarre in that the people that are the beneficiaries are not the ones that are actually, you know, uh, doing the work, making the change, et cetera. So we've got this discrepancy that makes the supply chain a hierarchy at a level that isn't handing things off seamlessly, it becomes a challenge. And I think this is the first time in the last couple, honestly, the last couple of months, I'll say, that I've seen this idea of, of a collective group of vendors, partners, funders, nonprofits converge together to sort of build awareness, alignment, and propel the common good. And that acknowledgement alone is light years ahead of where we used to be. And, and taking that critical step of how to fund and partner and process and support these nonprofits is a big deal. And, and it's questioning the absolute framework of what exists today. So I think that the, re- the interesting part that you and I both have always understood is that technology at its core is meant to solve human problems. So how do we look at this and apply this to philanthropy, build the ecosystem, build the technology to support, again, groups like yours in Chicago that were really trying to activate you know, a certain cause or, 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 or geo or whatever it be. And I think that's the thing that's been so interesting in supply chain is like the acknowledgement of the, the fact that, that the inequities are there and that the mm-hmm. collective public, private and social come together in a new way. And how do you set that up? Well, and let, let's, let's break down, down some data that I have just kind of off the top of my head for individual giving, right? So anecdotally, Tying it back to to my job and then bringing it into the 2020, you know, 2021, when I evolved in Chicago, I eventually got a job at a Catholic school, and it was a very well-established school. It had completed a $10 million capital campaign. You know, it served 700 children in the Rogers Park neighborhood of Chicago. And I was the database administrator. I somehow BSed my way into that job, having never really worked with a database before. I ended up in one of the interviews, I remember saying, well, technology is simply the the digital representation of relationships. And I actually, I, I thought that was a line and I actually believe no. that. and and but what was fascinating in in terms of when we talk about and you know inequity is first week there i'm told to process a check the check is ten thousand dollars it's my first week there it is one ninth of the entire organizational budget of my first job that i only had like two and a half years before that neon one helped facilitate 2.9 billion dollars last year and what ended up happening when we got into the details of the data, the CRM itself, and, and, and Corinne, you'll appreciate this. I did my 2020 year in review webinar uh, to kick things off a few I weeks ago. Do. I like that. Yeah. I had a slide that also said, I'm not going to tell you how much money we facilitated through our platform in this webinar because you don't care. 
<laughs> my CEO likes that. Our investors like that number. It looks good in a press release. If you are actually caring about it, it will be in the blog that I wrote that you can right. read later on. But it's not a tangible, actionable thing for anyone on that call who's you know trying to basically you know learn what they need to from your discussion. But yeah, I totally agree. It's a funny number that we all tend to like gravitate we, towards. We, but we love throwing out the big board number, right? Yeah. But 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 here's the big board number that actually matters when it comes to that. When we dug into that 2.9 billion, almost 2 billion of that was attributed to offline giving. Now, that could be foundations, that could be corporations, but the vast majority of this are still individual gifts. And we're not including the service fee side of things, which then mucks up the entire discussion, right? Nobody likes yeah. to talk about nobody likes to talk about service fees, at, at least in the individual giving side. You talk to a credit card vendor who talks about live stream fundraising, they don't want to talk about offline giving. They don't want to talk about service fees. It 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 messes with the narrative. But if you're still looking at things, people are still giving enormous amounts of money via check, via cash. Out of that. of the near $2 billion of individual gifts that we can attribute, 88% of them were $1,000 or more. Right. So for all the discussions about about online fundraising and the power of digital and yada, 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 the number still hasn't moved significantly when it comes to who is actually driving the growth of the organization. And a lot of it still comes from people with a lot of money at the top. Right. right. I mean, I think that's something we're, we're very cognizant of at Flux is we, you know, mm-hmm. we're, we, you know, have 300 clients, which doesn't sound like a whole lot when you're like, what? but the, you know, the truth is, is it does, um, the amount of money that goes through that is over. And again, to play that goofy marketing number is over 12 billion. And, and that is crazy that that 300 folks can do that. Um, it's something that's powerful and interesting, but it does show you that kind of gap between how how do we actually mobilize and, and then the truth is is those grants are actually hard to get from the top say 300 or whatever it be the, the people's lifeblood as an as a grantee are are really much more geared around the the donations of those a thousand five thousand yep. even two hundred so it's really yep. interesting I think you know getting those big grants is really important but then how do you bring everyone to the same table so that they're not lording that over and I think that's the question of you know, is there a role for for us in technology or or data to serve as a hand in that reaching out to connect people, the community, et cetera? So, how do you sort of see all of that come together? How do you see that that leveling of the playing field occur? Working together, whether that be through funder circles, resources, open standards. Tell me a little bit about where you see where you see that coming together. I think a lot of it is in order to talk about a problem and work on a problem, you have to name the problem first. And I think that we are starting to, and uh, movements like Black Lives Matter in particular, have helped put a spotlight on socioeconomic inequality. 100%. In all areas of our society, but there is particular uh, focus in the, the social goods sector. And actually, I would, I would say paying attention to your client base that a lot of your, your clients are doing fantastic work recognizing that. So that helps, but there's also parallel conversations such as what the community-centered fundraising conversation that that uh, folks like Voulet are right. are charging forward with, um, and it's fascinating to see 
this debate. There is this, and this is where fundraising Twitter gets kind of goofy, is that it's the debate between donor-centered fundraising and community-centered fundraising. Like, that's the thing. And there's, like, right. thought pieces by Roguerre about this and all of this stuff <laughs> and everybody. And all, and all these people are writing stuff. And I'm like, there is no debate. These things are not – they can exist at the same time. It is okay to acknowledge inequality while also talking about the fact that thanking somebody for their donation is a nice thing to do. Absolutely. <laughs> you can you don't have to to choose. Right. And I, and I so, think isn't that so funny in our world these days? I feel like we're all like in these like you get one or the other. And it's such a it's such an interesting dynamic that I that shows up in all aspects of like political, yes. social, philanthropy. Yes. I don't know. It's just a very strange mindset. And this goes back to the original item that that I mentioned in terms of that because we all come in so many different ways. And even if you look at the 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 history of philanthropy, I'm actually reading uh, Paul uh, Vallely's book, Philanthropy, from Aristotle to Zuckerberg right now, and, and just all the ways that people have thought about giving. And you even go back to, to, to the Greeks and the Romans, and a lot of it was status. Right. Right? Absolutely. Like, I get a ship named after me. Or they're going to do a play about me. And so the concepts of of that, I don't personally believe in pure altruism. I just don't. I think that, that, that even if somebody gives, that there's something in our brains that fires off and gives us a sense of dopamine that rewards us for giving. And that is a selfish act in a way because we want the pleasure from that. But – at the same time, it doesn't mean that we are selfish people. People are also and work better in in collectives. People work better when they are working uh, toward a common good, a common goal. There is a reason that you know we form societies. We're going right. to to perform better because we are together. And we are calling into our best selves in many cases. Yes. Where when we, and to be honest, again, into your point, it's the humanity side that the pure altruism may not exist, but the interest in doing so, as that again, amongst your peers, communities, whether that be local or cause based, these are places where if you play bigger, then you are, you know, to some degree, um, you know, helping the collective, revered by the collective. Um, yep. And moving it forward. So we are called into our best selves in this space. And everyone, it, it is a, I always get back to this idea of it's a, it's a collaborative economic theory. It's everyone gets yes. better together. And that's a very rare thing in, in, in the markets out there. Philanthropy is unique in that way. So anyway, it absolutely. Is. And, and this leads into the primary question that you have, which is around the role of technology on these types of things. And, and I think that that technology can be the great equalizer if we do it correctly. So first we have to name the thing, and then we have to identify the problems that come from naming the big problem. And and then you can change your, your outcomes from that. You can change your behavior. And so open data collaboratives, for instance, being able to... So I, even a call right before I got on, on the discussion with you today, um, I had a staff member asking me, where is the depository for like program data other than government data like how can i know how effective hum health and human resource organizations not 
run by a government agency are. They're like, can we find the Holy Grail? <laughs> can we find the Holy Grail? And I'm like, I'm like, do you know, good. Where, do you know where the Holy Grail is? <laughs> I'm like, good luck. Good luck. Like, I, I, like the best that I can tell you is that there's a bunch of governments that track this maybe efficiently, but even something like, let's think about a concept that nobody likes to talk about, which is the demise of an organization. I asked one of the smartest people that I know, Professor Elizabeth Searing, because somebody asked me, hey, did the pandemic close a bunch of nonprofits? And I'm like, anecdotally, I could probably say yes, but maybe. And I asked Elizabeth Searing from the the University of, of Texas at Dallas, who helped us do a research project on recurring giving recently. And she works in 990 data extensively. And I'm like, how do we know? And she's like, you don't. She sent me an academic paper called the zombie nonprofit. And it's like closing an organization. There's a difference between an, an organization closing or not operating and continuing to file to stay alive in terms of its status, but they're not actually doing anything. It, it's not like a business going bankrupt in many Absolutely. ways. You you know, you can keep a, a nonprofit, quote unquote, alive, and it's like sitting there and it's not doing anything. And then Absolutely. people are running reports on this saying, well, there's all these health and human service organizations or there's all these international aid organizations. And it's like there's not there's a bunch of weird right. family foundations that are tax yeah. shelters. There's a bunch of, you know, 10 or what is it? 10 percent of, of the 1.5 million have budgets over 500K. So to your point, yes. like. When they go in this idled role, you know, what are we really looking at there around staff and rent and travel and servers and all the things that we're asking people to say, invest in these things. It's really only 10% of the full, the full lot. I can go and I can find accurate market data around the wine industry. Right. I can find accurate market data on, on I have a whole book that shows me detailed graphs on the rise of mobile video games. <laughs> But if I wanted to accurately say what an individual's dollar is going to be returned into the philanthropic world, I have zero way that I can actually showcase that at a macro level. And that is one of the biggest issues that we have is that we're continuing. I think it was, um, oh gosh, uh, it just came out. It was a marketing firm, Edelson, I think, that, that showcased that nonprofits have a trust factor lower than the federal government. <laughs> I have not heard that one. That is very um, jarring. <laughs> That's very jarring. I had to double check wow. in terms of, 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 in fact, you know what, I, let me, uh, let me, let me confirm. I have some of the data kind of handy here because I posted it internally. Yeah. Edelman, Edels, Edelman trust barometer, 2021. Wow. Um, and so let's 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 drop a little bit of the high level stuff, which is trusted NGOs has gone down in the last year. Businesses are trusted more than NGOs. Trust in NGOs went down among both Biden and Trump voters. Okay, so the government I think is doing worse, but businesses are doing better, which is not necessarily a good thing in my opinion. So. <laughs> how do you see technology stepping in there? I mean, when you when you look at that and say, how do we bring trust back? The way that we do this is that we smooth out an organization's ability to understand the work that they're doing to then report back to their stakeholders. And the way that this happens right. is through existing initiatives that just need better focus and not focus in terms of the, the initiatives themselves are very focused. It's that people need to learn about them. They need to prioritize them. They need to think about them. So two that that uh, uh, come to the top of mind, one is 
the work that is happening around Microsoft's technology ecosystem for the common data model. I think that that's absolutely vital in terms of being able to have the same language. So Flux, I know, is working with uh, Microsoft as part of that. I am in progress, Corinne, right now to get us to do that too, because I think it's important. And then the other one is is on the individual fundraising side, the work that Giving Tuesday and the Fundraising Effectiveness Project is doing, mm-hmm. where literally you can go now because of the work that Giving Tuesday's done with FEP, and FEP's been around since 2006, and that is basically analyzing individual donor retention and acquisition and is somebody going to give and how much are they going to give and is it a $250 donor versus a $1,000 donor? And this is beyond our data set. This is several suppliers that have agreed this is important. And it has over 200 and uh, 200 million transactions from 20,000 organizations and $80 billion in donations since 2005, right? Like this is a lot of data to unpack. Nobody knows about it, in my opinion. So Giving Tuesday is helping because you can literally go to a dashboard that they have and it'll show the most recent data. So that's what we need to do is to not have the data. We all know data is easy to come by. We have more data at our fingertips than than in human history. But how do you tell a story about that? And it comes down to technology companies in partnership with the government, with foundations, with individual nonprofits, um, uh, you know, donors that that make impacts at all levels. What is the simple story that we're trying to tell? That's the thing that's been really missing. And, and there are a lot of places where we're seeing the evolution of that merging. So, you know, I'm in grants management, your nonprofit management, there's impact trackers, there's a million things out there that are all now coming together and trying to piece it into a integrated, seamless, blah, 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 a million things that whether they're they're partnerships or whether they are product integrations or whether it's even layering in data structures and, and, and AI. I mean, what are some of the cool areas we're seeing people try to make traction around these incredible possibilities of the collective and of the community building? The, the best one that shows the intersections from my point of view is is a giving platform, a giving day platform when you get down to it. Right. And, and so so you and I have talked about this a lot, but for people who, who don't know, a giving day is hosted by typically a foundation, some sort of host that can manage pretty much large dispersals of money to multiple points of, of contact, which a lot of times that's a foundation, right? Like that's kind of their job is we're going to give out money to a bunch of different organizations. Absolutely. So there's a there, there's a supply chain issue that's been solved there. But the way that they're doing it is instead of creating an endowment that then they might utilize some of the money to pay out a grant or uh, other types of, of fundraising initiatives, they go to the community and they say to the nonprofits, come to this one technology platform on board with us. And what we'll do is tell and use our collective power in the community to tell all the donors, come here and donate to the causes that you care about. Don't go to the individual website and figure out, am I donating on PayPal? Or did I go to something that says pay by check? Or go to, uh, you know, and use a really cool looking form, but then the receipt breaks or something like that. It, it, you go to one place 
And you can give to multiple organizations and you could do it by your donor advice fund. You can transfer, you know, your IRA, uh, you know, dispersal. You can you can do uh, a credit card. You can do e-cards. You know, maybe you want to do an RMD or a QCD, something like that. Cool. We'll we'll help you because we have the payments facility to do this. But what we're also seeing is corporations are getting in on this because they love the employee giving. They love the the promotion around that. And you get the foundation involved in a way that that they might be not doing it through grants. And so the technology there is getting better. They're adding in things that are inspired from the individual fundraising space, like live streaming, like texting, like peer-to-peer fundraising. We saw 120% increase in peer-to-peer revenue on our giving days last year, right? Like big, big numbers. And these are not like little things. We're talking North Texas Giving Day did $58 million in one 24-hour period in September. Incredible. And and this was- that's exactly it. It's calling people into causes that are local, that are specific, that are self- Um, that are impacting the self that they exist in, the communities they exist in. And I think you have to call it that, to your point, that giving circle, that giving day kind of aspect has got to resonate with them and, and give them an easy way to come forward and, and draw those those funds into a place where they start to see that, that, that community build. One of the simple things that I asked for that a guy on my team put together was I said, Community giving days are so locally driven because you might literally have like a weatherman and and people are just jazzed that the weatherman's involved, right? Like like it's that type of stuff, that type of local connection that gets people excited. And so I said, can you give me a tool that shows us all our CRM clients, all the individual nonprofits, and just let me type in a city, a state, or a zip code? And give me some outputs on what's happening in that community. Right. And, and he built it in, in a day and, and it was, you know, and, you know, smart data people, smarter people than me, this stuff is like easy to build. Right. And so, but it's so impactful because I can go to a community and say, look, my thesis is that if more organizations join your day, we're going to see a lift. Because in general, there's a higher lift if somebody joins in the community moment than if they don't. And so let me show you how your community's struggling if you aren't involving these people. Right. And 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 consistently we're hearing foundations, they get really fascinated by understanding these parts of their community because they don't think about them a lot, right? A lot of times they're worried about the the application. Or they're worried about the reports that need to come in to justify the Absolutely. the investment that they've made, and 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 there's something or a little bit like the mail merge that they put together to like get all the documents together. It's 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 yeah. it's, it's losing focus to your point. Of what exactly, and and so how can you streamline the process? And and this is what I love about what Flux does. In fact. Corinne, I might be reaching out because we're we're being asked to put together kind of evergreen curriculum. Okay. And the way approach that I'm trying to take is let's get subject matter experts in each area to talk about if you are trying to find grants, this is the best ways that you can think about doing this efficiently. Why don't we hear from the best people in the industry who help manage this stuff? Right. And then an organization is going to get a new perspective and it's facilitated by that larger ecosystem working right. together right. for that type of thing. 
Okay, so let's let's play out the the devil's advocate side too. I think there are technologies, obviously neon and flux, that are are recognizing this collective, are trying to build for it. Us on the, you know, from the funder perspective, building collaborative ways to have people come together, grantees, obviously meeting you guys in that same realm of how do we make things easier for everyone and solve those human problems that face essentially the philanthropic technology. But some of these technologies that are out there are are also some are free, some are not. You know, there are yeah. lines of open data and open community and open source ideas, but then there are places where, where things are proprietary. And there are also, you know, players in the space um, who shall not be named <laughs> that are, are claiming to be helping where they're probably not. I mean, let's let's talk about that for a bit, because I'm really curious to get your take on where you draw that line of technology helping versus technology hurting in this sector. I feel that that there there's been a great disservice that has occurred because of technology vendors specifically. And it's a little bit of a a controversial statement, but I think that we've kind of screwed nonprofits in a lot of different ways because we've set up fundraising management systems that are very closed, that are very high in the hurdle that you have to take in order to actually understand them. I I don't mind living in a world where people can utilize the best parts of our ecosystem. And as long as it works in concert with their rest of their tech, like if somebody wants to use Salesforce and us for peer-to-peer fundraising, I am thrilled by that. That is why I'm talking to Microsoft. I don't care about my CRM in that case if people are happy with it and it's working for them. Why build walls with that? And so many vendors, I had, Corinne, I had... Part of my job is that I have to talk to people who want to want get access to our client base because they see that we serve 35,000 organizations. And they're like, give me a piece of that. <laughs> and and so I have a lot of people that they come to me and they say, you know, well, of course you should work with us. We, we have somebody who said that that, you know, they want to use you. And I'm like, great. What are you going to do for us? And what are you going to do for the client? And they can't actually tell me an answer to both of those questions. And many times they're only actually answering it from their point of view, what's going to benefit them. And there's too many technology companies that they're only in it for their own selfish views because they actually don't understand nonprofits. They actually don't understand the philanthropy piece here. And I think that's one of the things that in many of the initiatives that I've looked at that are cross vendor, cross partner, cross uh, industry is that the you you can't you have to acknowledge the different motivations of everyone and also the things that make people unique because there are also an open market um, there is also an open market that gives us you know that we need to uniquely differentiate on and and so it's such a strange push and pull um, I think it's one that you know some people just put their head down and they say I'm going to manage the operational technology side I'll make sure that mail merge is just perfect and 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 maybe that's something we all need to do but the truth is is going forward there is this idea of how do we innovate across technologies to show up in that collective manner because it will require us all to work together but the motivations themselves are different and this is obviously not something I'm trying to resolve on this call so much as just stating the Oh no I thought we saw, I thought we 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 figured it all out um, <laughs> holy grail a couple like 10 minutes ago anyway so yeah well, we, let's, we got that it, well let's 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 think about this what what what's the always saying that the military's always 10 years of the private sector I would I would say like <laughs> something like that like who knows what 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 you know the army's doing but but then the nonprofit technology sector is behind the 
for-profit sector. Let's just view it from the lens of this viewpoint. The only technology that I can make an argument right now that is uniquely ahead in terms of the benefit of adoption on the technology space for nonprofits would be Bitcoin donations. Because the only reason that somebody's going to do a Bitcoin donation versus cash it out to get the cash themselves is the federal government is just going to outright tax the living daylights out of Bitcoin right now, but they won't tax the charity side. Got it. And so there's more of a reason that these tech geeks doing blockchain want to actually donate Bitcoin versus actually cash it out through the financial system that it's piped into. So so that's one of the only times I can think of that we're like ahead of the game. Otherwise, like try to go ahead and streamline your donor advised fund donation process. Like go ahead. <laughs> and, and and and, well, and try to like actually sex, I think some of the stuff I mean it, it's almost it's almost laughable because they can't even bless their heart a lot of the the large scale DAF management companies are still working with like 99% paper checks so there's some things too where you're like exactly. I don't even know they get there yet <laughs> like exactly okay, and, like yesterday <laughs> and and so where 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 it's frustrating is that I think that there's a distinct lack of innovation and pride in accepting that we can be better and we can also take inspiration from other parts of the industry. And there's some very, very cool things happening. I'm seeing uh, a company called Overflow. They're digitizing stock donations. There's obviously the, the Bitcoin with the giving block. There's the work that you're, you're doing and, and other companies that are thinking about in terms of grant dispersals that I know that are happening there. The, the payment facilitation piece is, is key here, but it's broader than that because you can make somebody get money, you know, quickly and that helps and that is definitively true that that the quicker an organization gets money the quicker they're able to deliver on their impact but McKinsey did a, a recent study on ecosystems just general ecosystem business not just the nonprofit sector by any means and they found that a proper ecosystem where you are providing services internally and externally that have been smoothed for your clients to actually have a pleasant experience end to end. There's only 10% of companies that they can attribute 5% of their revenue toward an ecosystem optimized approach in general. And, and I'm proud to say that at least Neon One is already in that five, that 10% in terms of, of what we can attribute to our revenue from an ecosystem. But everybody should be like that right. in the sector, in my okay. opinion. Everybody should. So, so I'm very passionate about that. Yeah, obviously. so much ahead of us. I'm, I'm very, I'm very hopeful, and I, I think too. I think there is an aspect of of a tectonic shift of foot where we're we're starting to see people think differently, act differently, and I'm excited to see where people come forward. I think it's it's up to people like you and I to also keep talking about this to make it real, so that people don't focus on you know, the mail merger, the competitive nature, it's keeping eyes up, keeping ideas open, keeping data open, technologies integrated. So I, I'm really hoping that this year we're, we're going to see a groundswell of movement in that direction. And I think it has to come from all levels, especially on the funder side. And I can tell you that the clients that we have at Flux that are some of the big kind of heavy hitters are absolutely having that discussion. It's the first time I've heard, seen it happen. I am ecstatic. Because I think once you see a success story, even a, a small microcosm of, of one 
you know, one or two organizations that start to work differently, act differently, and that that holy grail comes into focus around impact. And, and you see it happen once. And, and the great news is, is this is an industry, again, that will just take the lead of that. So I'm really looking forward to to the next couple of months. So we'll have to we'll have to chat again, Tim, in a and and maybe we'll call it six months, and then see yeah, let's let's see if the if the if the the long awaited paradigm shift that you and I have been ready for for years are we are we finally there yet? And I think you are right that at least the seeds have been planted, and I think they're going to start to sprout this year in some ways. A girl can dream. Well, in that that light, let's um, end the podcast on a rapid fire note. I want to run you through a series of short, quick questions. um, And I encourage you to respond with the first thing that comes to mind. um, And we can just take it from there. Are you ready? Yes. All right. If you could snap your fingers and change one thing about the grantee experience, what would it be? Higher character limits. (laughs) I like that answer. I haven't heard that. Where do you hope to see philanthropy evolve in the next five years? You know, short answer. <laughs> short short answer is is I want to be on, I want our industry to be on the cutting edge of technology innovation. I want for-profit companies trailing us and trying to catch up. Yeah. I mean, there's that possibility. We can leapfrog it all. We're, we're coming from behind. So let's see what we can do. Um, all right. Choose one person who served or funded the social sector, even, you know, throughout history with whom you would want to have dinner. Benjamin Franklin. <gasps> That's a great one. And want to know why? Sure. He founded the concept of the match grant. Get out. I didn't know that. I didn't either until this week. I'm reading Walter Isaac's uh, Walter Isaac's biography on on Franklin and and to fund the Philadelphia Hospital. Get out. He, uh, yeah, he said he recruited a bunch of people and said, okay, like, let's go to the public because we have you on board. Wow. Learning yeah. a new thing. Yes, I got to. T- well, we wait in, in a little bit of self-serving neon one world. We we were releasing a new feature that allows um, donors to go to a page and say, "I'm going to fund a match pledge during this time period on a peer-to-peer fundraisers page." It would be like if you're running a 5K, I can go to your page and be like, "The next five thousand dollars that comes in, it's going to double because of me." I like and so I was looking up like match stuff through history and, and I was like, oh, it goes back to the 1900s with Pearson Ward <laughs> and their YMCA campaigns. Nope. 1776, basically. There you go. Hey, do you know that I'm going to follow this up? And normally I wouldn't answer this question because no one's asked me yet. But my answer, um, I don't know if you know this, the, the nerd in you is going to love this. So uh, my answer is yes. Alexander Hamilton. For obvious reasons, he, you know, was a very early player in, in charity. But did you know that he is my great, 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 wait, five greats, great, 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 great grandfather? He's, I'm a direct descendant. I, I love it. I love it. And we can and we can all have a Jeffersonian dinner together. There we go. We could just invite Ben and Alex. We can all have a dinner together. Maybe there you go. Right. And Lin Manuel Miranda. Yeah. Well. Oh. Throw him in there. Speaking of, can we talk about for a brief moment Amanda Gorman's uh, allusion to the Hamilton stuff in her beautiful poem yesterday? Oh my gosh, that yes. thing was that was the most beautiful, incredible. Um, it was. I don't even have words. I was transfixed, as Anderson Cooper said. <laughs> no, absolutely. It was. I mean, it was a pretty powerful day in many, many different ways. But, but just to kind of see the representation in many different ways, um, uh, it was great. And and I'll. I gotta say, a hell of a fireworks show with Katy Perry too. 
But yes, the, the poem was very powerful, of course, too. Oh, it was. It was wonderful. Uh, final question. In a post-vaccine world, what's the first thing you want to do or experience? <sighs> Feel comfortable going on a plane again. <laughs> hugging someone. Hugging, <laughs> yes, yeah, so hugging, hugging someone other than my family, um, which I love. Yeah. Yeah. But I have, you know, I have three young children and, mm-hmm. and being able to get on a plane and fly away is, is, uh, is something I miss because I miss going to DC. We would be in DC, you know, uh, we did DC before and, and conferences and stuff like that. So yeah, yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. We have, we have our generosity exchange virtually this year. So I can't wait to actually have an in-person user conference. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Tim, um, for joining the podcast today and sharing about yourself, your work. I am obviously so happy that we've stayed close as our paths and and companies have evolved. And I cannot wait for another event in D.C. or elsewhere um, when we get a hangout soon and you get to wear that awesome vest again. You know what? I have to retire it because it's not on brand anymore. Get out. You can still wear it. (laughs) I'll wear it for you. I'll wear it for you. It's a statement. All right. Our listeners can learn more about Neon One at neonone.com. This will also be linked in our episode description. You can listen and download our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and of course, directly from our website at flux.io. Flux is the cloud platform that powers impact in philanthropy. And of course, if you like what you heard, please give us a review to make it easier for the community to connect and discover more about the future of philanthropy.